If you're listening to this, there's a good chance you work within the real estate investing industry. There's another good chance that you would like to increase the sales of your products or services. Well, you're in the right place. United States Real Estate Investor is a platform you need to place your brand directly in front of your target audience. With our focused, growing audience of real estate investing beginners, enthusiasts, and seasoned professionals, you can continually reach our captivated viewers and listeners with ease. To learn more or to get started today, just visit UnitedStatesRealEstateInvestor.com slash advertising. That's UnitedStatesRealEstateInvestor.com slash advertising. Get ready to increase your brand awareness and your bottom line. Attract clients with content. Hey, welcome to This Month in Real Estate Investing. This episode will be covering a variety of news items, including the Fed screwed up. Real estate billionaire Sam Zell just warned that hot inflation isn't going away anytime soon. And Gen Z is coming for the housing market. And the Airbnb bust proves the Wild West days of online vacation rentals are over. So all this and more on this episode of This Month in Real Estate Investing. Let's start the show. I'm your host, James Brown, and I help fellow investors reach their passive income goals through our hybrid investing model, as well as other traditional types of investing. Reach out if you want to learn more. If you're watching live, feel free to comment and ask questions. Uh, our guests today are Patrick Grimes, Nathan Turner, and Luke Andrews. Uh, looks like we're still waiting on Patrick, but uh, we'll get things started off. Uh, why don't we get started and have you guys introduce yourselves in in that order, um, Nathan first, then Luke, um, and share your background and what types of investing you focus on. You bet. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. This is uh, this is a new one for me. I have never. I don't do a lot of real estate uh, shows. <laughs> a lot of real estate information. Reason being is because I'm a note investor, so I buy mortgage notes. I have done a lot of real estate investing and real estate is very closely tied to mortgage notes, but I'm not in, in real estate per se. Uh, a little bit about my background. I started flipping properties back in 2005, 2006 and uh, 2008, I got started into doing some note origination where I was creating loans. And then in 2010, started buying existing loans and that has kind of been my bread and butter so far. Uh, and I, I, to me, I, it's just a fantastic business. I love being in notes and everything that it offers and more flexibility and options that it gives you compared to traditional real estate. So <laughs> I'm coming in with that perspective today and we'll see, uh, how much I mess things up. 
<laughs> awesome. I, I'm really fascinated by that that side of real estate. So I'm sure we could talk a bunch about that. All right, yeah. Luke. Yeah. So I'm I'm Luke Andrews. I'm out of Louisville, Kentucky, and um, you know my my real estate experience kind of kind of runs runs the gamut a little bit. Um, I am a real estate agent, so I do help people buy and sell, but I also have a team of 21 agents. Um, but I also have a real estate investment business as well. So a little bit of the fix and flip, but primarily buy and hold and then some of the short-term rentals as well. So I was fortunate enough to be in the 40 under 40 club. So I was able to purchase uh, my 40th rental property right before I turned 40. Um, and then with that, I've done some books, written some books, done some education, a few things like that, but, uh, really excited to be here and get to learn from you guys. Fantastic. All right, Patrick, glad you could join us. Yeah. Great to be here. Um, yeah. So Patrick Grimes, uh, CEO and founder of invest on main street. I started out real estate back in 2006 and seven, uh, lost it all in nine, 10, 11 and pre-development shifted to single family, uh, did a bunch of buy and holds, uh, then traded those up to larger multifamily, uh, founded a private equity firm, invest on Main Street, and now uh, holding about uh, 500 million uh, general partner on that multifamily and uh, diversified into oil and gas of about 200 million on that side. Oh, interesting. Awesome. Well, thanks guys for, for being here today. Let's just jump into the news. So uh, through MoneyWise, <clears throat> the Fed screwed up. Real estate billionaire Sam Zell warned that hot inflation isn't going away anytime soon. Here are the three shockproof assets to help protect your wealth. And he names fine art, wine, and of course, real estate being a hedge against inflation. Um, anybody want to jump in? start off the, the conversation about why real estate is a hedge against inflation? Well, I, I wrote an article in Forbes on that topic, um, actually specifically why income generating existing construction real estate. So um, where I where I lost it all first time, not not buying existing construction income producing, but um, the hedge is pretty clear with rent. Rents tend to grow with inflation. Uh, and as long as your debt products are fixed interest, which is biting a lot of people right now, uh, or you've uh, ponied up and paid a rate cap so that your interest rate doesn't take all your cash flow and you can ride out a, a, a downturn, then you'll find that in a recessionary environment, your rents can oftentimes outpace your expenses and sometimes grow your NOI. Um, and that can, that can happen as long as your rents can, your tenants can still pay it. So at one point you have stagflation and, um, maybe you can't continue to raise the rent, but uh, there is hedging on both both sides of the coin there. Yeah, I, I tend to agree, Patrick. And I mean, you know, you, you kind of talk about the the recession and potentially if that if the housing market does pull back due to interest rates, and you've got fewer people that are actually buying and transacting, they still need a need a place to live, and then so you you could potentially be flooded with renters very similar to 2008 2009 um you know that's kind of when i got started in the in the rental piece and i was actually able to go shop while everything was on sale and then being able to i like i said the, the market just had this influx of renters 
And so with, they, they were all good quality candidates. They just, they got themselves into a spot to where they couldn't particularly buy. And with supply and demand out there, you know, supply being low and demand being high for, from rental perspective, I was able to have a more of a choice of higher quality tenants and was actually able to, to raise the rents through that as well. Actually increasing my, my income quite a bit. Mm. That's awesome. And Luca, same kind of thing in 2008 is when I got started. Uh, and instead of rentals, what I was interested in, I'm too lazy for that. So we, instead of rentals, I would rather sell the house on terms, uh, doing a seller finance deal so that I don't necessarily, depending on how you set it up, but I can set it up so that I don't actually own the property at all. Uh, so when, with a rental, you've got, you know, the roof to fix, you've got the toilet to fix, you've got tenants in there. Uh, when I do a seller finance deal, I transfer the title over to a homeowner. Uh, and then I just collect the payments. So I get all of the income that comes in from, from, you know, the same as a rental, uh, but I don't have to worry about the roof. The toilet's not my problem. And I'm not dealing with tenants. I'm dealing with homeowners. So I agree with what uh, Mr. Zell was saying in the article. I think real estate is definitely uh, one side of it. I would suggest take a look at notes, even some, some seller finance uh, and look at that as another hedge as well. Yeah, I kind of live in that world with seller finance and lease options. And, you know, there's there's pluses and minuses, of course. Um, yeah. Which way you go with that. But I know we've got investors, they just want to be hands off, similar to like the note investing where they right. just want to carry the note, be the bank and not deal with those phone calls in the middle of the night. Yeah, so, yeah exactly. What, what do you guys <laughs> So we're talking like rentals or rental income. What do you think about the appreciation in this kind of a, uh, an environment where, you know, we've got materials and labor going up, pushing the, the value up. Um, and I know a lot of the markets tied to new build. Um, there's indicators with that. You guys have any comments on, on where that's heading? Again, rentals, they, they cost money to upkeep as well. So, so you've got the cost in there is for the purchase, and then you've got cost to upkeep that property. That can really eat into your profits. Um, and again, I, I, I won't, I, I promise I won't just hijack and say, do notes, do notes, do notes. But, <laughs> but that is a factor. Uh, I will point out, though, that the downside of that is uh, you talk about inflation, and with inflation comes appreciation as well, oftentimes. Uh, and in, the case of notes, that's the downside. And so I want to point that out early on is that is the downside. So with a rental property, you've got that increasing, um, increasing equity over time. Uh, when you own the note, that is a depreciating asset. So that's something that you will miss out on. But laziness has its, has its drawbacks, I suppose. Gotcha. Well, let's dive into the next uh, article. From Commercial Observer, WeWork is in talks with their lender to restructure $3 billion in debt. Um, I assume you guys read this and have some, some opinions. Um, anybody want to jump in with what uh, they thought about this? I, I'm actually a fan of WeWork, their mission, and what they did. Uh, 
being, I got two master's degrees while traveling constantly. And, and I, I was a subscriber and I would jump into reworks all the time. I even was in Singapore one time walking through the street and I saw my phone connected to a rework Wi-Fi wi and I looked over and there was a WeWork right there. They grew, you know, too quickly, too fast. They were too aggressive and too optimistic. Um, and like many commercial real estate investors, they're finding themselves um, both on the, the debt and private equities way over leveraged. Uh, and, and that's where I was back in 2007 and eight when, you know, but uh, most people that didn't lock in long-term financing and fixed interest, and they find that because interest rates are going up, the cap rates or the way that commercial real estate's valued, um, they're inflating. And when cap rates go up, values go down. So uh, the, the effects on the appreciation has been devastating to them because now their equity has been drained. Um, and coming out of COVID, their income is very low. So it's a very tough time for them. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree, Patrick. And it's, uh, you know, I, I think they're a phenomenal concept, um, but they probably did grow a, a little too, little too quickly. Um, you know, their, their amenities, the few that I've, I've been in, they seem to have very high amenities, very high quality there. Um, and I was always wondering, you know, how can, how can this be sustainable uh, long-term? Cause there's a lot of upkeep that goes along with that. And I mean, I, I think at this point, even with the cash injections that they're talking about, they're most likely going to have have to have some version of a of a decrease in quality and then even potentially coupling that with an increase in in monthly rent and costs from from the actual tenants and the, the end users and so i'm just wondering how long that can be sustainable with you see this sometimes with restaurants too where they they come out with uber high quality food and try to try to do it at a price and then gradually over time decrease the quality while increasing the price um, on on the backside, and it's just not sustainable long term. Yeah, I saw that you know they laid off 300 employees in January. <clears throat> That's probably going to hurt their customer service or whatever roles those those people were in, um, as they cut the fat, you know. Yeah, and Patrick, you mentioned like the the low interest rate, and then now we're coming into highest interest rate. So again, we've got these people that are going to try to, you know make those payments uh all of a sudden that payment's going to jump significantly and so that that hurts and that's it's not just we work that's all kinds of office space yeah office space is, is hit hard in fact our our next news item unless you guys have more to add to this we can jump into the next one um so yeah, the other next articles from go banking rates 10 u.s cities with the most empty office buildings um, so, oh shoot, hold on, I got to the wrong screen, away from my notes, <laughs> hang tight, okay, um, so top of the list was Atlanta, LA, Denver, Phoenix, Chicago, DC, San Francisco, DFW, Houston, and San Rafael, California. My, my initial thought on this, and just it was just an initial glance, especially the, the top five, the, the way the list is broken out with Atlanta, LA, Denver, Phoenix, and, and Chicago. 
my initial thought being in all of these cities very recently is traffic is horrendous in each and every one of those. Um, and outside of really Chicago, the, the public transit systems in any of those cities are, are kind of subpar. Um, you know, I, I think it's interesting, you know, you don't have like a, a New York city on this list that, you know, the, the subway system tends to, tends to work very well. Um, but I kind of look at it as a product of too much traffic, too much time lost in commute and not, and just the, the advent of working from home. You know, that's something that COVID kind of, kind of brought out as it shows that many more roles can be done from home. And I really thought that coming out of COVID that a place like WeWork would have jumped pretty significantly. Um, but I think there's still some commute times that go along with that. Uh, but that's, that's kind of my initial take was it, it all has to do with traffic, lack of public transportation, and then increased commute times and just, just working from home. Yeah, agreed, Luke. I think a lot of people figured out that during COVID is, man, there's a lot of things that we can do outside of the office. And not only is that for a lot of people more preferred to stay at home and work, uh, but then at the same time, a lot of these larger corporations see how they can trim a lot of fat uh, off of their expenses and not have to pay for all this office space. So it's it's kind of a perfect storm for the office space world. Uh, I'm not sure we're going to fully recover, certainly not anytime soon. So I was in part-time real estate um, kind of leading into like kind of 14, 15. And I was in a, I was in a corporate role in a, in a Fortune 100 and they were starting to transition. I mean, this is obviously pre-COVID in 14 and 15, but they were really transitioning, trying to lessen that footprint for all of the costs, the, the overhead that they had. We were actually required to work from home two days a week. Um, and we lost really all specified designated space within the office. There were just multiple different types of workstations that were there based upon the work that you had to do for that day. Mm -hmm. And so they were kind of a ahead of the game in that front. That's interesting. It's <laughs> interesting to hear you say that because, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Pre-COVID, I, I have some colleagues that worked at places like Amgen and Genentech, and they were already moving to this office space 2.0, where you literally had high school style lockers and open Starbucks areas with snacks and coffee. Mm -hmm. And people were expected to meet for meetings. And they only had, I think it was half to three quarters of enough office space for their employees. A lot of them were traveling pre-COVID. And then COVID happened. And so I think that in general, there was a sense already of people wanting more freedom, coming out of this, need to come into the office. COVID obviously accelerated that, we're no exception. My, I, I've been remote in my position. My wife does feature length animated films for like Disney and DreamWorks. And for the first time ever, they all went home during COVID. And here they were producing animated films in our back office. And it wasn't but a couple of weeks before my wife came out and said, let's move to Hawaii. So we moved to Hawaii two and a half weeks later. And so we're one of those people that uh, contributed and she's never gone back. And they're, you know, remote VPN into their computers. It's just, it's just large ghost buildings that ultimately could just be a server rack. And it's kind of a wonder of that matter of time. I think the triple net leases are really great investments in office buildings and retail until they're not. Uh, they're very low maintenance. They're not a lot of work. They're perceived as very low risk until you lose your one keystone cornerstone tenant. And we're seeing that happen dramatically across the asset class right now. 
which is kind of a vote for multifamily or more diversification than all in and in one 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 tenant. That's my perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Antonio, our, our producer, just put a note that uh, you know they've got these big ghost buildings in China, uh, and I they've just been standing there empty. It's kind of a fascinating thing, but I guess they're starting to demolish them, which is. I'd like to see what's going on behind that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys have read about that. But I was going to point out too, uh, in that article, I was saying that there was a lot of CEOs saying that they actually had a competitive advantage uh, when they had people coming into the office over those that were remote. Um, I suppose it depends a lot on the type of work. Um, if there, there needs to be more interaction within the office, it is harder when it's virtual. I mean, we're we're working together basically like on Zoom all the time, right? But yeah. uh, what do you guys think about that scenario? Can you comment? I, I I think it's I think there there are options, you know, like. Like Patrick was talking about, just really decreasing that that footprint and saving some saving some overhead, but keeping some spaces around that are, you know, larger corporations almost creating their own WeWorks within within the system, and so it's like they've got just big open spaces, with, you know, we we had like picnic table type setups and a couple of almost like like restaurant booths with high backs, so there's small senses of privacy, and then just small little glass rooms that we called phone booths. If you needed to step in and take a private, uh, private personal call or even a, a private conference call, and so I, I think there there really are some some great opportunities to still have some spaces available in case people need that interaction. Because I do know that there there are some that they thrive on the person to person interaction, while others you know really prefer and are more productive working from an from an at home environment where they can eliminate the commute. I think a lot of the younger generation too, um, they're more practical in terms of, you know, tell me why I need to travel. Tell me why I need to go into the office. Like they have to make a really good case for it, or I'm just going to stay home. We've seen a lot of migration over the last couple of years uh, to smaller towns or outside of larger centers uh, where people are buying houses out there and, and so that they can have office space so that they can just have their home office and work from home. So it's going to be really tough. Uh, I know Antonio jumped in here again and saying there's a lot of companies saying that come back to the office or else. Uh, that's only going to go so far, in my opinion. I think that uh, there's there's going to have to be made a really strong case. Otherwise, the shift is going to stay at uh, you know the home office and re remote working. You know, we've kind of ha we're holding the control, you know during COVID and then with the job market being, you know, pretty tight, hard to get employees. So they were kind of like, Hey, you want me to work? Uh, let me work from home. So mm -hmm. see how this all, all breaks down. <clears throat> um, we got Cindy Coleman uh, just commented. I don't think it will be the same. I agree with Luke's comments 100%. Yeah. That's always nice to hear. Yeah, yeah totally. 
There's a comment about Apple, Tim Cook actually punishing. I've heard Elon Musk is doing, trying to punish those employees, which are not coming back. They've enhanced tracking now. They're tracking their employees. On the other hand, other companies have won big. Ones that have adapted to the change in culture and have embraced remote workers can, can get better talent and they can potentially pay less in other markets where it's less expensive than they're headquartered. So I know that the relocations that Facebook are doing and Twitter are doing, if you do relocate, they've reserved the right now to adjust your salary <laughs> because they're not going to pay you what you would be if you were living in the middle of San Francisco. Uh, so that was a really good move um, by the employers, but it does certainly reward those that are more agile and allow for more freedom. <clears throat> Cindy commented again, uh, the problem employers are seeing is productivity is down. Employees are doing personal tasks instead of their job. That, and, and there's softwares that you can use. I mean, we use those with virtual assistants uh, to, you know, monitor what uh, people are doing anytime, whenever they're on the computer or not. Uh, so that there may be a more of a shift to that. I mean, at the same time, there might be more of a shift to using virtual assistants in general. If everyone can see that, oh man, we can do a lot of these things virtually. There's a much cheaper market, labor market out there. It's interesting to hear you say you've had success with that. We we have probably a dozen virtual assistants and we're using screenshot monitors and ones that have intelligence that can actually monitor all the apps they're running. Um, ones that will tell you whether or not they think something's fishy or there's patterns, but they have mechanical clickers now on their mouse that gaming mouses that randomly click. And we've just found that having the monitor gave them the ability to fake it out and work less. And so we actually just started saying, okay, we have the monitor only for locking in and out, but we have the only way we can monitor their progress is by results now. Mm -hmm. We have to literally track their calls, their emails, and we have a whole VA, that's all she does. Are they actually working? <laughs> because we can't get any of the monitors to work. I'd be very interesting to hear if you have found uh, had similar trouble. For me, honestly, it bottom line is results. So is the job getting done? Is the work getting done? That's all I really care about. If it takes them five minutes to do something that would take me an hour, great, good for you. But I just care about the results. I just want the, the end. Agreed. Well, hey, let's uh, take a break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey, it's me, Antonio Holman, founder of United States Real Estate Investor and producer of This Month in Real Estate Investing. Are you ready to ignite your financial freedom with what has been called the hottest REI strategy around? Or should I say strategies? Enter Jason Pallister's two-day investment blueprint where you will learn the secrets that the real estate investing community doesn't know because they never had a reason to before. With Jason's two-day investment blueprint, you will learn how to tackle real estate deals with over 40 different strategies, which means your chances of losing another deal nearly disappears completely. In Jason's two-day life transformation intensive, you will learn how to generate more deals, close deals faster, win more deals over other investors, multiply your real estate deal strategies, and much more. Jason's two-day investment blueprint can help you grow your REI business to six and seven figures faster with much less aggravation. 
If you want to learn how to invest in any market in the United States, even the tough markets, and close multiple deals per month, visit twodayblueprint.com. That's the number two, dayblueprint.com. And make sure you tell them you heard it here on This Month in Real Estate Investing. Don't believe the no more good deals hype and visit twodayblueprint.com today. Now back to James with This Month in Real Estate Investing. All right, great. Let's get back into it. Uh, from wealth management, real estate investors brace for liquidity squeeze amid bank sector turmoil. Um, we're talking about Silicon Valley Bank and New York Signature Bank. Um, <coughs> comments right off the bat. Liquidity is- squeeze. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Patrick. Hey, the, the note guy should answer this one. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is everyone else's bad news is our good news. Um, like I say, I got started in 2008 when everything was crazy. Uh, so when I started buying notes in 2010, I mean, everything had already hit the fan and was coming down and, uh, and we're there to pick up the pieces. So this is something that actually, if you go and talk to note investors, um, we all thought something was going to, the shoe is going to drop in 2019. We're all just waiting for something, some kind of a catalyst to, to put it all into motion. And it just didn't ever come. All of a sudden COVID shows up and we go, this is it. Get ready for the wave of defaults. And then that didn't come either. And that goes back to what uh, that other article we were talking about with Mr. Zell. And he's talking about uh, the government pumping up the economy and, and throwing a whole bunch of money at it, which I think was the right thing to do, honestly, at the same time that kicked that can down the road. And I think it's kind of starting to come to a head. So we're, we're, I don't think we're 2008 all over again. Um, but, uh, it, this is definitely a rideable wave in my opinion we're in for. So, Nathan, I'm curious then your, your perspective, what's the, what's the strategy, you know, like what is, let's, let's forget about, um, you know, large government policy strategy, but like for local investors who are looking to, Hey, I've got, I've got some cash. I'm willing to take a little bit of risk. How do I ride this wave that you're talking about? You know, how can, how can I financially benefit from, from what's going on right now? You know, somebody, somebody like yourself, what's the plan there? So two things. Uh, Number one, I'm, I'm raising money. I'm, actively raising cash so that I can go out and buy some more of these notes um, because I foresee a lot of defaults uh, coming down the road. At the same time, I'm, I buy defaulted notes. I also buy current notes where people are making regular on-time payments. Those regular on-time payment notes, uh, I foresee those coming from a lot of seller financing. So as banks fail and then tighten up their, their lending policies the same way they did back in 2008, 9, 10, uh, it turns to seller financing and uh, the seller financing world is, is ramping up more and more. It's already a $30 billion a year industry. So it's a huge, huge sector. Uh, and that's only going to get bigger um, for the mom and pops or for the institutionals that are doing this on a more regular basis. Um, for the note investor, that's a way for to help them recapitalize cash out and then go and do it again or do whatever they want. I will go ahead and buy those notes and just collect. Nathan, are you just in single family 
home notes or to get into other stuff? I'm just single family. Yeah, and uh, commercials, the first thing, that we're, and this is uh, what this is talking about. A lot of the banks are this size of bank. They're more in the commercial real estate space. Um, I just don't have any experience with it. I'd like to learn because I think it's going to be a very interesting space. Not so much maybe the office space like we were just talking about, but uh, but I think there's a lot of opportunity in the commercial as well. Yeah, yeah I didn't realize it was the small banks that typically do that commercial stuff and mm -hmm. they're the ones that end up failing. The bigger banks tend to stay away or at least keep a smaller portion of their portfolio in, in the commercial stuff. Yeah. Cool. Oh, Patrick, you're muted. So on the commercial real estate side, which is where I live, um, there is fear-ish, uh, I would say, on from lenders. Uh, but the Fed responded. They were going to raise the interest rates 50 basis. They only went 25. And we're going to kind of see what happens. There's some lenders that want to delay things. Uh, we have two closings right now. Um, the lenders have kicked the can down the road on uh, 20 to 30 days. Um, so there is a little bit to be said for uh, the ability to get debt um, and also uh, investor capital. We're sitting talking about raising capital. I think more so than something like a banking scare can it cause tangible effects to returns in real estate. It can affect the ability to raise capital because of the fear mongering that happens. Uh, and what I'm seeing on the energy side, for example, because we do diversified energy portfolios, a huge number of investors from real estate pivoting to energy. And, you know, like it is another essential need that's non-correlated and doesn't use debt. So it doesn't have interest rates as a way to diversify. And the conversations have recently gone much more so on the side of fear of real estate so let's get into something else that's not attached or correlated to it. We're seeing a big wave of that um, as the interest rates rise and especially as uh, we've seen this banking um, pseudo crisis happen. I say pseudo crisis because a real crisis would be a real crisis. We're not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Any other comments before we jump into the next news item? All right, let's jump in uh, from Business Insider. Gen Z is coming for the housing market. Um, I love this one. It was kind of a surprise because uh, they, they called out uh, Soli Caetano, who um, I, I follow her on Instagram. Um, she's 22, or I think she started her investing journey when she was 22. Um, used technology and figured out how to do it remotely from, she was in California and bought in Cincinnati, her first property. And now I think it's just like two years, she's got 30 some properties and, you know, partnering with some other people. So, so she's not done it all on her own, but she's orchestrated it all. Just incredible what she's done. And now she helps teach. So um, any comments on that? Uh, on that article, <clears throat> I think I think Gen Z, it's 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 going to look a little bit different than it than it has in the past, and I think that that's been kind of the the where they talk about in the article the new American dream, 
And I think Gen Z has done a really good job of embracing the technology side of it um, from both an, an education piece and a tools piece that has allowed them to do things on more of a, a, of a, of a global scale. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people in, in my market, you know, kind of heartland of, of America here, you know, they, they liked the real estate space because it was something that they, it was tangible, that they could go out and they could just touch, that they could just go visit each, each and every day. Um, but Gen Z has really embraced from, you know, working remote, working from afar to also managing and owning from afar as well. And it's like, hey, I may not be able to afford in my own city but that doesn't mean that I can't go out and I can't utilize the tools at my disposal and build wealth by buying in, in less expensive markets. Yeah, I think uh, like Soli got started with bigger pockets. That's how I got started learning about investing. Um, there's a lot of tools and they've curated some really great books um, about one on long distance investing. Um, there are, but I, I can tell you from working in the in the real estate sales side mm -hmm. uh, it has created a lot of faux investors we'll, we'll call them you know people who don't really know what they're doing who are trying to go out and they're they're trying to be wholesalers who aren't really they're in it to just make a, a quick buck and not really in it to actually make an impact or build build a portfolio or build uh, any sort of sustainable revenue and so it, it, it's created some challenges. So it does as both agents and then buyers and sellers as well. We have to make sure that we're doing some additional due diligence to make sure that the party on the other side actually knows what they're doing, that they actually have the right to be able to sell a specific property. And that, um, you know, that we're, it's taking a lot of additional work. And like I said, due diligence on our side to make sure that everyone is, is protected in this instance, because there are a lot that, uh, causing some problems they know just enough to be dangerous oh yeah I, I have wholesalers reach out all the time okay start asking questions mm -hmm. are you really a cash buyer yeah what's going on behind the scenes yeah it's very go ahead patrick well i love this panel because there's we come from completely different <laughs> businesses right we're all approaching real estate in completely different capacities because I read that article and it's like housing markets coming for you. Gen Z's are coming for you. And I'm like, well, what they're coming for is they're becoming a renter nation in my world. My lens, you know, are and I heard that embracing technology. Yes, they're embracing technology, the remote. They're also embracing the technology in our multifamily buildings. And uh, Gen Z's are not buying homes uh, and uh, the boomers are retiring and they can't afford new homes. So what we're seeing is, especially from the Gen Z, is just huge demand for millennial type amenities in our apartment buildings, and that's new. That's new for that's new for multifamily. The American dream was always go buy a home. Well, for the millennials that went through 2006, they don't like what that did to them and their family and their parents. So they remember that. And so, from my lens, I don't understand it. I don't believe it. <laughs> I don't because the reality is, uh, if you look at the data, they're all renting in our you know, A and B class apartment, large apartment communities packed full of amenities. And Patrick, is that just, is that the millennials that are renting or the Gen Zers or both? Both, yeah. Interesting. And the whole, the trend is uh, moving away from buying homes and kicking the can down five to 10 years later uh, to doing so. 
Yeah. So I, again, I got to plug notes doing this from when I introduced myself, I didn't say where I'm from. I actually live in Canada. So I've been doing notes from Canada in the U S since 2008. Uh, so talking about embracing technology, technology is what allows me to do what I do. Uh, so for those that are those Gen Zers, those millennials, um, my two cents, I've managed property from afar. I've had rentals for on the other side of the country and maybe they're doing it better than I did, but I found it really difficult. Uh, when a renter moved out and then I had to go out, it was more economical for me to actually go out myself and take care of that property to turn it around than it was to hire somebody locally to do it. With a note, I don't have to worry about that. That's not my problem. So I get, uh, again, I get all that cash flow, none of the headaches. So it's a fantastic thing to do from afar. So my people talk about investing in your backyard and I say, yeah, I just, I just have a really big backyard. I like it. You went the complete opposite direction as I did. I actually wrote an article in Forbes on how single family is a nightmare and how the asset protection issues associated with signing on loans and putting properties in your own name. And instead of doing more three bedroom, two bath, and you went, well, let's just do the debt. Well, yeah. I went from three bedroom, two baths and my first multifamily deal was 86 units. That, that allowed me to have on-site manager so right. that I didn't have to do any chasing. I had to chase a property manager, non-recourse debt, like so that I'm safe and I was an income producing asset in a better market further away. And, yeah. and you know, so I mean, you went totally different directions to solve the same problem. Yeah, same principle with two different approaches. Yeah. Real estate's amazing. Yeah, that's what I love about it. <laughs> there, there's there's no, no perfect solution, right? There's upside or downside to either. So. Let's jump into our next one uh, from Commercial Observer. Fed indicates possible end to ongoing increases after 25 BP hike. Um, Jerome Powell is looking at 5.1% by the end of 2023 and inflation down to two. This is kind of a world I'm not really uh and again i i kind of hope they do keep hiking uh just for my own benefit um but at the same time actually i think there is i to me it makes sense that they do have to raise up the interest rates they it has to create a squeeze there has to be a little bit of pain so that the economy slows down uh and and this is the way they've chosen to approach that i don't know if there's another approach but i believe that that's what they're trying to accomplish and so as raising interest rates continue, um, that's what the outcome is. And I think that's what they're after. Well, I hope Jerome didn't hear what, what Nathan just said, because I, <laughs> I would prefer that they don't keep raising rates. I, I want them to solve the problem, and that's inflation. And we need that uh, for the health of our, our nation, and national security, for everything. Um, and so the, the problem is they don't have very many knobs to fight that and they've been effective it's been very effective in the past crash the economy through raising interest rates keep raising until something breaks well the banking system not the whole banking system a couple of banks broke banks that were not allocating well too heavy into bonds right and um and so they're but they're keep going they need to solve the inflation problem and i think ultimately you know our nation has to have that fixed so they're going to keep raising it they're going to keep raising it until we get 
that we do see enough hurt in the economy to fight to stabilize and get it back to two percent. Um, but at the, in the meantime, I think in real estate and I think in oil and gas, and I saw Anthony made a comment here about oil and gas, and I think in essential needs, and that's really what it comes down to: housing, food, and energy. Those things that are still needed. You know, those tangible assets. Those are the things that you'll find yourself winning through an inflationary environment. Uh, so that's why I tell people. I, I'd agree 100%, Patrick. It's, you know, there's a, pl a price elasticity to it of them trying to continue, continue to raise. You know, it, it, it's a very simple example, but it's, it's really no different than, you know, $11 beers when you go to a professional baseball game. I mean, they're, they're charging $11 and everybody complains about it, but everybody's still paying it. Right. There will come a point. I mean, if they thought that they could charge $20 and people would still pay it and the system wouldn't break, as you say, they would be charging $20. They're going to get to a point to where things break and then they start they start dialing it back to to get it fixed. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Let's take another break to hear from our other sponsor. It's me again, Antonio Holman, founder of United States Real Estate Investor and producer of This Month in Real Estate Investing. You know, one of the best ways to increase your company's brand awareness and increase warm leads is to create written content online. But as we know, content creation can be very time consuming and not very cost effective when having to pay professional copywriting fees. It's time to use REI Content Packs. REI Content Packs, done for you content packs, give you the tools, flexibility, and cost-effective way to increase your brand's visibility and online presence without spending hours or even days stressing on what to create. REI Content Packs are a collection of high-quality, ready-made real estate blog articles exclusively created for the real estate investing industry. Can you imagine the possibilities if you could do two to three more deals per month without increasing your ad spend? REI Content Packs can help you do that. Can you imagine getting unlimited online traffic, increasing your Google ranking, getting more leads, and making more money? REI Content Packs can help you do that too. To get started increasing your brand's content and lessening your workload, head on over to thismonthinrealestateinvesting.com slash REI Content Packs. That's this month in real estate investing.com forward slash REI content packs. It's time to get off the online marketing hamster wheel. Try REI content packs today at this month in real estate investing.com slash REI content packs. Now back to James and this month in real estate investing. All right. From Business Insider, the Airbnb bust proves the Wild West days of online vacation rentals are over. Uh, I like how they pump <laughs> up these, these headlines. Oh, God, the sky's falling. Um, are any of you guys in short-term rentals? I am. Okay. And what do you think? What are you seeing? Hate it. Absolutely <laughs> hate it. Um, I've got a business partner that, that loves them, that thinks that they're fantastic, but, you know, we're management fees are exorbitant. Um, you know, the, the turnover, sure, the, the revenues are significantly higher, but the risk is also significantly higher that, that goes along with that. Um, it's constantly trying to make sure that everything is, is updated. We are chasing ratings and rankings and finding a great deal of, you know, if you want to call them tenants, patrons, whatever you want to call them, 
who are now in a spot where they'll they'll rent for a weekend or a week, get to the end of it and say, hey, oh, by the way, we had these problems. Um, if you don't knock 50% off of my uh, weekly fee, then I'm going to trash you online. And, you know, just one or two bad reviews will absolutely kill an Airbnb. And so there's there's just a lot of things that go along with it that, you know, it's it, it can be great, but they're there there's a there's a lot of challenges and struggles so you use a company for... oh go ahead, go ahead. i was just gonna say how levered are these like when they see the income like in the article it talked about that one example where it's going from seven thousand dollar a month income down to three um how levered are these like how how badly does that hurt and again i i don't know it's it's pretty significant i mean it's uh you know they're they're financed at, at very similar to, to any other any other property that, that we have. You know, it's okay. typically a, a 75, 25. Um, and some of them tend to be unique properties because people now are, as they're going onto, onto Airbnb, they are, uh, they're looking for experiences. And so you've got kind of these unique properties that may or may not have a lot of value outside of the Airbnb market. And so, it can it can be a real a real struggle that if we decided we wanted to move away from the short term rental and just move into you know a full you know twelve to twenty four month lease tenant, um, it, it's difficult finding some some tenants to come in and, and take those over. Yeah, yeah you got to look at Plan B on any real estate, right? Uh, so what, that's a good point, though, James. What is Plan B? Hmm. Is it just the twelve to twenty four month rental? Is that your best bet? So for me, uh, Plan B is uh, well. One, it's 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 packaging and and selling if, if at all possible. Uh, but the other option is is coming through and um, and looking for longer term tenants, um, someone who who's willing to come in. But again, we we need very high high revenues with these with these properties because they tend to be a little more expensive on on the front side. And so you need more than what just a traditional month-to-month tenant's going to provide. How difficult has it been for you to find somebody to manage the day-to-day, manage the cleaners, and keep cleaners uh, on it's, track? It's not. It's not terribly difficult. And ours is in a, you know a a remote part of the state, a state that's very heavily trafficked. It's in a in a large state park that is probably our our most popular state park. And it's an interesting property um, and we do have a property manager down there, but it's, you know, they're charging 28% uh, the monthly, re- monthly revenue to come in and take care of that. Now that covers cleaning fees that covers some maintenance uh, things like that, but we're still paying to have the lawn maintained uh, still paying pest control uh, plus cable internet, you know, water, electricity, all of the traditional utilities that are there. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's a bit it's a bit of a of a challenge. Yeah. What I'm really interested. Sorry. I was just curious what state that was in. Kentucky. Okay. Yep. I'm mm-hmm. really interested to hear you say that. I because I I haven't heard recently from I I hear from Airbnb investors occasionally because both single family and Airbnb. And small multifamily that have the same hair pulling like hey i'm i'm tired of it i want out and oftentimes they'll call me say hey can i 1031 exchange my profit sell it 
and trade it into a multifamily deal with you as a partner. And so we'll do that. And so I hear, I hear stories on both sides. I hear stories like you could never compete with the cash flow I'm getting. I can retire on just a few Airbnbs, uh, but it'd take a whole lot more of these larger multifamily passive investments to retire. Um, I guess the, the question is really, is it, is it worth it? Where are you at with your need for cash flow and appreciation, the economics, and is it worth the hair pulling? I don't have any hair left, <laughs> so I just <laughs> the larger multifamily existing assets, right? Um, but then I diversified into energy, and that, <laughs> that, that has its own problems, so I guess I can't talk about that risk profile. But it's interesting to hear. Do you see people exiting Airbnbs? Because that really, that's the only voice I hear ever here on my side. I, I hear people exiting all the time. Now, I don't I, I don't necessarily agree with the article that the you know the the Wild West days are are over. Um, I think that there are there are still a significant number of people looking for Airbnbs to rent on a monthly basis, um, but not a lot of the owners who got in thinking that it was you know easy money are realizing that it's very difficult to to get them turned over and to keep those ratings up mm -hmm. up high. Uh, where a lot of people I see are having some great success are with the, the traveling nurses. Uh, so like in my city, for instance, if you are inside in really even, even my County, which is the entire, entire Metro area, they're trying to get away from Airbnbs completely. So they've passed a lot of laws where it's very, very difficult to even have an Airbnb. Uh, mm -hmm. But the way to get around that is to either have your property zoned commercially um, or is to the tenants can be there for 30 plus days. And so they're renting them out to traveling nurses. Um, and so these, you know, these are people who are coming in for 30, 60, 90 day contracts who are getting very generous uh, housing stipends. And so having a great place for them to set up, it's longer, more sustainable revenue and income um, with a generally a very high quality of tenant, um, but kind of gives you a little bit of the uh, that allows you to take advantage of some of the pros of the Airbnb by continuously being able to kind of raise the rent every 30 to 60 days as the market uh, requires and as the market allows, as opposed to being stuck in a 12 or a 24 month lease to where you're pretty well locked in, even if the market has jumped significantly. Do nurses pay similar rents to typical Airbnb? Uh, they, they do. Um, you know, I mean, if... <sighs> It's also one of those. So they're going to they're going to pay a higher rent than, you know, somebody traditionally coming in, signing a 12 month lease. Um, but it's not going to be quite as high as if I had it rented on an Airbnb 30 days a month. But that's mm -hmm. also not typical either. So if it if it breaks even, it's a, you know, 15, 18 days a month that I'd need to rent it out as an Airbnb. I think that's a win all day long. Um, because who knows if I'm going to be able to rent it essentially every other day throughout the month and especially during some of the of the slower months because they all tend to be a little bit seasonal. Yeah, there's so much less um, management going on. Like I, I was a super host renting out a, a room in my house. I, I, I kind of I started out letting people rent for one day at a time. That was insanity. I was like, then bumped it up to two or three days minimum. And that, that way I wasn't having to clean and prep every day. Um, so I could really see the, the midterm rentals being great 
even if you're not making as much profit, you're not putting as much effort yeah. into it. Um, I'm just wondering, like, I, I hear about it all the time, people starting to convert or at least offer that. Um, but how many traveling nurses are there? <laughs> like, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot right now, um, you know, especially in some of the, you know, mid-sized markets. Um, so Dayton, Dayton is one, uh, Louisville is another, um, St. St. Louis, um, Huntsville, Alabama. There's a lot of these kind of mid to larger size markets that are getting a, a significant, they need a significant number of, of traveling nurses. Yeah. And there's corporate rentals too, right? Um, I've got a, a friend that, that was his main, main deal. He said, you know, there was risk to it. They'd have some amazing months, you know, pulling in hundreds of thousands of dollars and then some months, eh, not so much. So you got to put yeah. in a lot of legwork on those on the front side, building up those relationships. Right. Um, and without those relationships, it's, it's virtually impossible to break into that. Yeah. You, you have to be able to deliver and not screw up. Otherwise whoop, you're blacklisted yep. from the whole company that was feeding you. Right. Corporate corporate housing is one of the, when I hear that, from a broker, I get excited because it means somebody has built their whole model around a, a single or maybe two employers. And when they pull out, they're distressed and the the note guy is about ready to take the property <laughs> because they've fallen under their debt covered service ratio. And, and we swoop in and lease it up with regular long-term residents. So it's, it's a pretty risky play and it can fall very quickly because those lenders you, you lose over 20% of your, your residents, 30%, depending upon the terms, they can move in very fast and take that property. Mm-hmm. And then note guy's always on board. He's ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> Vulture. <laughs> We're there to help solve problems, but uh, there has to be a problem first. Awesome. Any last minute comments on that one? All right, let's jump in. The New York Times. Bank crisis could cast Paul over a commercial real estate market. I missed that. What was it? The New York Times cast what? Uh, New York Times said bank crisis could cast Paul over commercial real estate market. I know, you know, borrowers are scared. There's, uh, there's, keep talking about how there's fewer loan originations recently so banks are definitely tightening tightening up and i can kind of go back to that other article we we're talking about the difference between big banks and small smaller ones are more uh, or less risk averse more nimble right um, but still everybody's kind of clinched up i think more than anything else it just it puts um even just kind of, you know, regular Joe's on edge because nobody, I don't, you know, memories are short, but at the same time, I think a lot of people remember 2008. Uh, So when we start hearing about banks closing, um, that really gets people, you know, tensed up pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And, and is it going to continue? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Maybe. And, and at what rate and, and which banks and, what effect is that going to have? That's a bunch of unknowns, and it'll be interesting to see how kind of how it all plays out. 
It's, it's hard for me to comment on that without going back to the, the prior article because the reality is the Fed's intention is to cause pain. Uh, this is the first sign of real pain. Um, we just, what was it, a couple months ago that they announced 500,000 jobs were added to the economy over the last year. Well, that means that all this effort of raising interest rates and all the, the pain that it's caused, our economy is still just kicking it. It's just still, it's booming. <laughs> it's like, come on, slow down for a minute. Uh, and I, yeah, of course, it's going to cause lenders to be skittish. Uh, it's going to cause investors to be skittish. And right now we have a $9 million asset and a $50 million asset that didn't close on time. And we've kicked the can down the road twice, all lender related items. So we're just trying to get things sold. <laughs> so we're like, uh, we're like investors should have your capital back next month. Oh wait, I mean next month. Oh wait, I mean, so, you know, that, that causes problems. So, I know some bridge lenders if you're interested. <laughs> Can you loan on $60 million multifamily deals, Nathan? I can't, but uh, I've got some colleagues that could. So Patrick and Nathan, I'm, I'm curious to get to get your thoughts. Um, you know, I, I think banks with the with the way that they're set up now is they start to contract a little bit on the larger commercial projects. They're still going to need to to be lending money and, and bringing in some revenue in that point. Do you think that that's that they'll shift? You think they'll just tighten completely, or do you think that they're going to shift their focus into, um, you, you know, moving down more to the the single family borrowers and buyers, um, and and kind of pump pump that way and focus their business in in that direction? I actually had the same thought, Luke. Um, when reading through this article, I had that same that same thought of, are, does that mean then there will there will be a shift more to residential, and they look at that a little more closely. Um, at the same time, though, we've still got higher higher interest rates. They're not sky high, but they're higher, uh, which is starting to discourage people. Um, we'll look at the next article, but it's uh, it's starting to discourage people from getting out there, especially if they've already locked in at three percent. They're really not very motivated to go back to a bank and and lock in at six or seven percent. Sure. It's so, really, sorry. No, just to say that it's interesting. I, I, I don't know what their plan B is. I, I, to your point, it's the motivation. It's really the sentiment of it all. It's the sentiment driven, like, should I wait right now? Is, are they going to rebound or interest rates going to go down? Because you look back in the 80s, interest rates were well north of 10%. People mm -hmm. were doing real estate deals. People were making lots of money. Uh, it was fine. I, <laughs> you know? That, but people uh, weren't feeling like they were getting a bad deal because the prior it went up a percent, up a percent, up a percent. People were still doing deals. During COVID, we actually did see a contraction of the banks on commercial properties. And there was a, a long period of time where it was almost impossible to get a loan on commercial properties. But Fannie and Freddie stepped up with their task by Congress to provide liquidity in a recession. And we were able to get loans even during COVID when all the banks had dried up. And I think the other side is it's a capitalistic market, which is part of the problem why we're having a banking crisis because the banks get way too aggressive, especially the Silicon Valley and the New York type of banks, they get way too aggressive. And First Republic, by the way, which is teetering, gave me the most, I mean, they offered me like a $200,000 line of credit 
I, I, just they do they do wild things. And so, um, but that capitalistic market, uh, those are the banks that, uh, um, the, that's the market that's going to drive. Somebody's going to come loan to you. Somebody's going to provide some kind of loan to you at some kind of interest rate. And new players were come on board that weren't on before because they didn't want to lend at those low interest rates. And all of a sudden, you see new insurance policies and all kinds of different players coming on board. We'll be able to find liquidity, whether it's different players given the note uh, or it's the government in, in, in the term of their Fannie and Freddie agency debt. We'll still be able to do deals. Uh, there's not going to be a mass migration to single family. We still have to house America. Agreed. And, and again, what I was saying earlier is that it may shift into more seller financing deals uh, where the banks maybe aren't necessarily lending, but somebody will step in. And if that's a seller finance, uh, somebody who either owns a house, a second house, they're, they're willing to sell on terms or somebody that's just doing it as an investment and they go out and find a house and then sell or finance it back out. And they've got an Airbnb they're trying to get rid of. Uh, I don't know, but you know, yes, the economy will keep going. Yeah, that's what, what we're doing. And even <clears throat> this is kind of interesting. We'll might have an investor that can't get financing, but has some money to put down. We'll have another investor buy a property for them. And then once they can get financing, they can kind of step in. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to, to do deals here. Almost like a financing arbitrage. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. You know, yeah. Maybe yeah, a way to get Gen Zers, you know, going. Yeah. So. Yeah. Right, let's, let's jump into the next one from Fox Business. Florida's red hot real estate market cooling down. Gone are the days of bidding wars, broker says. Well, we've had Florida in, like, I think every month we've had uh, some article where we're talking about how hot it is there. But do uh, you guys have any? Any experience with Florida specifically? Patrick, you're nodding. I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I mean, those articles, somebody's writing that article every single year in the history of the United States, right? <laughs> probably an identical title. In fact, if you told ChatGPT to write an article that's the most commonly written article, it would write a devastating article about some market collapsing, right? It's, it's going to be nonstop like that. I personally am not a big fan uh, because going through a recession, having lost it all once, I want to be the tortoise and not the hare. And I want to buy in recession resilient markets. And so those that have diversified employment. Uh, so I don't like buying where I live in Southern California, Orange County. Uh, I like buying in places like the Southeastern states of Texas. Um, those were tax advantage and landlord friendly. Where Florida fits that, it doesn't fit the diversification of employment. And so what you're, those much more, and so the, the Orlandos and the Miamis and Fort Lauderdale are much more associated with hospitality. That is very recession affected. And I don't like having any large piece. I like having that, but I like having a lot of other things like education and healthcare, finance, logistics, a piece of technology as a healthy makeup of an economy, not not like you see in Silicon Valley. But in Florida, that really only leaves places like in the north, like Jacksonville, you know, that where there's heavy logistics, military education, and it's not super heavy. 
but you can still take advantage of the tax advantage, the influx of people kind of on the, on the north side of Florida and the great weather. That's my take on Florida. I do see Florida, if you look, look at the Fred, you can type in Fred yourself statistics and the Federal Reserve posts the statistics in every market. You can do the, the graph of the housing prices in every market. Places like Houston just steady climbed when 2006 happened, they leveled off and they went up again. Places like Las Vegas and Phoenix, Orlando, they went up like this. Then they took a nosedive down and it took 12 years for them to just get break even. They started going back up again. While Florida has made some progress to diversify their economy into more recession resilient markets, they're not as heavily indexed as they were back then. It's still going to be a roller coaster in Florida. Um, they're relying purely on people moving there right now to, to, to fuel that. Well, Patrick, I really agreed with you with your first statement where you talked about that this article could be really written about anywhere and could be written every every year. You know, specifically in this article, I'm I'm looking at it now. It says that, you know, the in Palm Beach County single family home sales are down 21 percent and condo sales down 38 percent from one year ago. Well, yeah, they they have dropped some, but they're they're coming down from all time high sales. Mm -hmm. You know, what we're seeing really uh, across the country and from a, you know, being a, a boots on the ground agent and leading a team of boots on the ground agents. Yeah. Is the market slower this time not this year than it was this time last year? Absolutely. It was. We're back to closer to, you know, kind of 2019 market statistics, 2019 sales. And at the time during 2019, every agent in town would have told you that that was the best year that they had ever had. Um, so it's not like we're, we're going to 2008, 2009, where it was some of the worst years that they've ever had. We're just taking a, a slight step back, but the headline absolutely gets a lot of clicks. It gets a lot of people talking about it. Um, and yes, is it down a little bit And that? Could that potentially be an indicator for what's to come? Maybe. Um, but I don't think that it's it's any reason to incite panic at all. Totally agree. I, it, it's an article where it's, I mean, you mean news agencies are exaggerating? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. I, <clears throat> I, for properties that I've taken back and resold, yeah, things have slowed down. Uh, like you said, Luke, from all-time highs. So I, I'm not concerned. Uh, not yet. Uh few more bank fails and maybe we'll see something else happen. I don't know, but, uh, but no, it, it it's fine. Um, slowed down. I, you know, I, in the title of the article, it's cooled down a bit. I think that's a pretty good description. It's cooled down a bit. It's not crashing by any stretch. All right, let's jump into our fun news item for the month from CNBC. Finland is the world's happiest country. Now it's giving away free trips to show travelers why. Um, I, Finland has gotten the world's happiest country six years in a row, it says. Uh, they base it on uh, income, mental health, physical health, social support, generosity, corruption levels, and freedom to live without discrimination. Um, and so what they're doing is... Uh, giving away free trips for a four-day master class. And they cover Finnish philosophy and work-life balance. Um, we also talked about uh, it being like a skill. I think it's just 
uh, a mindset thing really for them that the rest of the world isn't isn't caught up to. Um, what do you guys think of that article? I think I think it's a, a very interesting experiment. Um, I think they're they're teetering on potentially a little, little danger there. Um, you know, I, I think it's I think it's great from a perspective of you know let's let's increase tourism, let's kind of highlight what what we're doing here. Um, but I think that this attracts you know things like this tend to attract a lot of skeptics and a lot of people trying to prove it wrong. And then so you invite a whole lot of people in to come in and scrutinize and analyze. And all of a sudden you're bringing in a lot of negative energy, um, which could potentially have some, some opposite or some negative effects. Got a comment. Is Finland as capitalistic as the United States? I can't imagine. Yeah. All the Scandinavian countries are pretty socialist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but they're not afraid of money. <laughs> they're very wealthy. Yeah, they yeah. have it. They do have significant oil reserves, and so they do come from a, a, a place of abundance when it mm -hmm. comes to income. They're born into most of them are from my my limited understanding. Um, the countries are very wealthy, and so you have a little bit more. Yet you start off uh, in those countries a little bit more privileged, but that means you can expand your mind. You can be more inclusive, and they they. They, they help out with healthcare, they help out with education, and they've done very well <laughs> by doing that. And I have friends that just moved out of Southern California and went up to Scandinavia and just set up shop for you know a year or two because, because of it. Uh, and they loved it, they had a great time. Um, so I, I, I love those people and I think they're great countries. And I don't, I mean, I, I like the fact that they're promoting you know, their inclusiveness and um, so it's, I mean, it's not far, far off from my, my, you know, my, my beliefs in a lot of ways too. So more power to them. I yeah, like the line there where it talks about, uh, their close relationship with nature and down to earth lifestyle. So we recently moved from Montreal, which is more kind of a, you know, city vibe, uh, to Alberta where we're near the Rocky mountains. And I, I, <laughs> I gotta say, I think there's something to that. Uh, where we're closer to nature, closer to, um, yeah, more of a down-to-earth lifestyle. I, I tend to agree. I think that's pretty good. Yeah. I was born in Alaska, moved to Colorado. I love being out in nature. Yeah. It's good for you. Yeah. Yeah, this reminds me, it's been quite a few years, but I believe it was Norway was incentivizing people to move there to work, and, like, they would pay for their housing for, like, first year or something, mm -hmm. uh, teach them how to speak the native language. Uh, it was hard to, hard to resist for some people that were in countries where they, they did not have a good lifestyle. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I've heard too, uh, some like Swedes kind of feel a little uh, jealous of Norwegians because Norway's got more oil reserves, you know? <laughs> Maybe there's going to be a war between them. I, I, I really want to go there and go dog sledding. Maybe you can do it up in Alaska too, but I've just heard great things about dog sledding up there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the master class I want to attend. Yeah. I went to Norway for a Red Bull snow kite event up on the Ordanger Vida Plateau. It was a fantastic trip. Wow. Middle of winter, 
<laughs> Very isolated, but it was amazing up there. Got to see the fjords. Just, anybody has a chance to go, definitely do it. It's on the list. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's uh, jump in. We've got a bonus question. Um, this is new to the show. So what is chat GPT? Um, the answer, chat GPT is a large scale language model developed by OpenAI based on the GPT-4 architecture. GPT stands for Generative Pre-trained Transformer, which is a type of artificial intelligence designed to understand and generate human-like text. ChatGPT is designed to engage in conversations, answer questions, and provide information on a wide range of topics. Um, by the way, the answer was given by ChatGPT. <laughs> I was wondering that. So, uh, yeah, I was gonna, what's your source for that answer? <laughs> it's such a, a trip, isn't it? Um, are you guys using it in your business yet? Do you plan to? I, I use it regularly. Um, you know, my, my team is actually using it now to write listing descriptions. Yep, I do I start doing that too. Plug in some very basic information and it will write phenomenal listing descriptions. Um, we're using it too for creating social media content. Um, we can do it significantly faster. I mean, we we came through and decided at one point, we said, you know, what are what are a hundred terms that you know, everyone, basic terms that everyone should know about real estate uh, with definitions. And so it cranks them out. And then we asked, we said, okay, well, we wanted these videos to be at 60 seconds or less. And we realized that at the average rate of speech, most people talk about, you know, 120 words a minute. So we asked, it said, you know, constrict every definition down to 120 words. And, and then we said, write it at a fifth grade level. And so it created all of this. We were able to just upload it into a teleprompter and then you can just knock out these videos with very, very minimal time, thought, editing, any anything at all. Because with the script right there, it eliminates the us, the ums, all of that other stuff that we tend to uh, edit out of there. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I tried it on this last listing I've had. And uh, I always struggle with those listing descriptions. And I did exactly what you said. I just kind of put the basic information how to rewrite it out. And, you know, I have to edit it a little bit, but oh my goodness. I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> so do you guys think copywriters will be eliminated? I don't know. I think it, just, it shifts and changes. I mean, to me, the real value of ChatGPT, I think is going to be in who can ask the best questions. Now that it's been kind of democratized and it's open to everyone, it's going to be about who can ask the best questions and frame them the best way. That's who's going to be most successful using it. And that might be the copywriter shifting into that role instead of actually writing the copy themselves. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It's a tool, right? Mm -hmm. Whoever knows yeah. how to use the tool best. Like I, I was a graphic designer for 25 years. Um, I had the same tools that somebody else could use, yeah. but I knew how to manipulate them and create effective, amazing graphics, but somebody that's doesn't know what they're doing, they don't even know where to click, you know, that's, that's the key. At every big technology leap, there's been scares of it 
causing mass unemployment, but all it's done is enhance and accelerate the sophistication and the growth of the human race. <laughs> for the better, or for the worse, we've, you know, then the last hundred years were very different, very different world than we will be in the next hundred years. And that is with these kinds of tools and the other AI tools coming out, it's going to happen at an exponential rate. It's going to be exciting to see what happens. I think if you're an individual uh, and you're not embracing the technology, then you're at risk, right? Uh, but there's going to be jobs, I, I, my belief. <laughs> there's going to, if, as long as you're willing to work, which we found right now coming out of COVID, a lot of people don't want to work. And, they're, and we're seeing that as delinquencies and we're, they're getting pushed out. So eventually people will find that they need to find a job and, and those jobs require a bit more sophistication potentially, or they choose a different kind of role. Yeah. I, what I really find fascinating as a designer is the graphics they're creating. I'm just in shock, like what they're coming up with. Like well, the, words is one thing, but graphics, like mm -hmm. it's it's pretty interesting. And I've also seen like a couple of you know kind of mid mid sized influencers who send out you know regular emails will feed a lot of their old social media posts, a lot of their old emails in there. And so it gets to know and understand their voice. And so it's responses going forward tend to write in their voice. So it sounds less chat GPT ish and more like yourself as, as you're coming through. Yeah. I, I, I was kind of thinking, oh, this is just, you know, advanced algorithms, but when it's learning, that's, that's true AI, right? crazy another comment that's uh, writing code seen some examples of writing code and going in and like somebody commented commented in the, the chat too um, you can adjust your answers and, and tweak your questions to keep keep refining and having it help you it's not just a one shot oh here's here's what you got you can go oh well uh, I'd, I'd rather have it sound more more inviting, like for property description. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting stuff. Very cool. Yeah. Well, guys, this was great. Um, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Jason Palliser's two-day investment blueprint and REI content packs. Our guests have been Patrick Grimes, Nathan Turner, and Luke At Andrews. Uh, in that same order, why don't you guys let people know how they can connect with you? Yeah, so you know, Patrick Grimes with investonmainstreet.com, investonmainandthenstreet.com. Uh, it's Patrick at investonmainstreet.com if you want to shoot me an email. Uh, we do give away a free copy of my Amazon number one bestselling book. If you'd like, a, we ship it for free on our website, investonmainstreet.com slash book. Uh, persistence, pivots, and game changers. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, so Nathan Turner, uh, my email is just that Nathan at earnestinvesting.com. Uh, the other thing I would just say, I've talked a bunch about notes. If you want to learn more, uh, my conference is Diversified Mortgage Expo coming up June 2nd and 3rd in Nashville. All content, there's zero pitching. It's my conference, my rules. And uh, so whoever is speaking there is not allowed to, to do any kind of selling. 
It's just all educational. We're there to help people learn more about notes. And uh, specifically those that are doing seller finance, <clears throat> we want you there because we want to buy your notes. So come check it out, Diversified Mortgage Expo. Yeah, Luke Andrews, you can find me at lukeandrews.us or email me luke at lukeandrews.us. Um, always happy to, to talk real estate, real estate investing with anybody that's there. I do answer all my own emails. I don't have an assistant do that. So any anybody that wants to reach out to me, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, lo love to hear from anybody. Fantastic. You guys are awesome. Uh, also want to thank our producer, Antonio Holman with United States Real Estate Investor. Follow and subscribe to this month in real estate investing on YouTube at youtube.com slash at United States REI or your favorite podcast app. And remember, when one door closes, another door opens to financial freedom. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.